Welcome to the Advanced Women in Manufacturing podcast, where we talk to amazing female leaders in Canada's manufacturing sectors. Advanced Women in Manufacturing is a presentation of Annex Business Media. Now, here's your host, Sukanya Ray Ghosh. Welcome to the Advanced Women in Manufacturing podcast series. I'm your host, Sukanya Reghosh, editor of Manufacturing Automation magazine. We have Janelle Ebella from Diverse Solutions as our guest today. Janelle is the founder and principal consultant at Diverse Solutions strategy firm. She founded the company with the goal of increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion in corporate settings while comprehensively benefiting the organization, employees, and clientele. In this episode, Janelle discusses the importance and benefits of implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workspace. She talks about how manufacturers can begin this journey, whom they can involve as part of the process, and the need for continuous evaluation. Hello, Janelle. Uh, welcome to this podcast for Advanced Women in Manufacturing series. So before I go into in-depth questions, I want to ask, like, what is it that you do in Diverse Solutions? What is your role there? Hi, thank you for having me. So my name is Janelle, and I'm the CEO and founder of Diverse Solutions. Um, this is a company that I created um, a a few years back based on consultancy work that I've been doing in the past. And I really wanted to fortify the changes that I was making and kind of build something from that. So I'm kind of, uh, I, I'm formally known as the CEO, but also I do a lot of the groundwork as well. So what was the, you know, primary idea or reason behind creating diverse solutions? So about mm, five years ago, I started to get involved in equity work a lot more. I started to better understand my own experience uh, growing up in education and kind of experiencing the world around me. And I wanted to better understand that. So at the time I was a secondary school educator and I was teaching in Chatham-Kent, um, which is a completely dem different demographic than say Toronto or even Windsor now. And so my experiences were very different because I was teaching students that didn't look like me, that didn't have life experiences like me. And it started to make me wonder how the world around me impacted the world, the, how, I, how I experienced the world. So I started to learn more about that. And I started to attend education conferences to um, speak to my research, speak to my understanding. And a lot of that was surrounding the way that I, as an Afro-Indo-Caribbean woman, experienced kind of Canada. I grew up in, in, in the United States and then uh, now being in Canada, obviously my experiences are much different than someone who may be white and living in Canada. So I started to explore what that looked like for myself and kind of talked from that first person. And then I started to go into my master's of education research, which looked at how school 
influenced people's identity development and how school and the world around us influenced our well-being. And that has kind of led to the work that I have done as a consultant and as a speaker and a writer um, in the past. And then now more recently, through my doctoral studies, I've explored that kind of further into the private sector. And I started to want to understand how institutions and how businesses interact with employees and in the community and how those kind of relationships affect well-being and the acceleration of business, but also the well-being and, and uh, sustainability of employment. So it was it was a long process and the trajectory has changed quite a bit in the last few years, but the goal of Diverse Solutions is to offer those practical reflective strategies to help public and private sector businesses grow and flourish in the diverse society that we have. So from the work that you have done, from your perspective, what is the importance of implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations today? So I'd like to take a step back and acknowledge that diversity exists already. Um, the diversity that we have in our society is based on what we call intersectionality. So our, our identity that kind of situates us on a map of all the identities. So for me, as an Indo Afro Indo um, Caribbean woman, I am experiencing the world based on my skin color, based on my ethnic heritage, based on my race, but I'm also experiencing it as a woman, a woman in society and everything like that. So my perspectives on everything from problem solving to decision making to projecting future goals, everything that I have and perceive is much different than any other person just because of all the things that make up who I am. So each and every single person has diversity. We have all of the things that make up who we are. And so those workplaces that have even two people have diversity because you're two different perspectives. And so diversity, equity, and inclusion, as they kind of fit together, it's acknowledging that we have different perspectives and different lenses the way we see the world and welcoming those. And as we welcome them, that creates the inclusion and then the equity is offering those different resources and support to ensure that people who maybe have historically been marginalized have those opportunities. So altogether in workplaces, when you employ equity and inclusion, it's really a benefit because you're now unlocking those new tools and those new perspectives that otherwise would go lost. And so together it's actually pushing everyone forward because now we can maybe find that missing piece that we never acknowledged or recognized before. So, you know, you were uh, talking about how your experiences are so different from anyone else's and that sort of uh, defines how you look at things and what you bring to the table in an organization. Um, what do you, like from, your, from the work that you have done, have you, how has it been accepted by the organizations that you have worked with? How well has it been taken? How open have you felt that, you know, Canada is overall in uh, implementing uh, DEI in the workplace? So I find that over time, I have learned to 
rework how I say things. And yeah. at first that kind of sounds, it sounds problematic because I know a lot of people that are in advocacy like to be very blunt and forward and they don't like to kind of misconstrue the way that they speak about things because then it could confuse people. But I like to kind of use that workaround because a lot of times these are the first time someone is having this conversation. It's the first time they're hearing words like misogyny or racism or bigotry or sexism. And, and they don't necessarily have, they just don't necessarily have grasped that concept before they start to employ it. And so sometimes you have to take it all the way back to the root causes, all the way back to the beginning and say, and acknowledge this is no one's fault. If no one is intentionally doing something until you know that you're doing it. So having those conversations used to be a lot harder for me because I was very passionate. Well, I'm still, I'm still very passionate, but I, I, I used that passion as my fuel to have the conversation. And I wanted to just share information and educate people and be uh, create those informed places. And now I've learned that coming on so strong, especially in a topic that is so sensitive, requires a little more care and fine tuning. And so the conversations I have now are more about the self and how you can, you yourself can reflect and how you yourself can make changes and understand how things work. And by doing that movement from the, the big push to, to knowing to kind of that slow, small crawl, it's become more accepting and more welcoming. People are starting to see in the world around them that diversity, equity, and inclusion and the changes in society are happening, whether they um, are on board or not. And so it's become more essential to be educated as an individual. It's become more essential to be educated as an employer and as someone that works in diverse workspaces, um, which is every workspace. And so I think that now the conversations have become easier because both sides are engaged and interested. And before the way I was targeting it was very confrontational. You know, coming to a little bit to, you know, what's happening in Canadian manufacturing, uh, you know, workspace, uh, Statistics Canada's recent data, you know, shows that only 29% of the uh, Canadian manufacturing workforce consists of women. Uh, what, what do you think of this? Like any thoughts on this? Uh, what could be done? And why is it so skewed even today? I think there's a, there's a number of you know, factors that influence the percentage of women in manufacturing. First, I, I think that I would like to touch on um, the environment itself. Um, I know a number of people in manufacturing. Uh, I know a number of organizations that I've worked with in manufacturing, and there seems to be a consistent problem across the board, and it's that the environment and the culture isn't welcoming to women. Women um, traditionally in these settings have worked in the office. Yeah. And so you have women in the office and then you have the men in manufacturing in the plants. And so there's a big separation between what is, I'm, I'm, I would even go as far as saying what is gender etiquette, but 
there's a more masculine, rugged environment in the plant and women still hold that feminine structure in the, in the office. And so while those two aren't necessarily gender mutually exclusive, that's just kind of how the industry has always run. And so now as you're seeing women come into plants and into, and men uh, moving into offices, you're starting to see that transition between, uh, um, Dis, well, you're starting to see that discomfort. There's a, there's that traditional comfort of, and, and this is definitely a, an assumption of like the men's men, like the rugged, like just rough housing environment in plants or out in shop floors. And, and it's very different because there's traditional views of gender. And so as women come into the space, it feels like an invasion of of the, the like like a man cave almost and so as as we kind of meld those together there needs to be a removal of the the action to the gender so right. just, just because you're you're goofing around and making jokes and things like that doesn't mean that you can't do it with a woman in the workplace the problem, though, is that a lot of those jokes and fooling around are sexist and racist and, and misogynistic and bigoted. And so that's the problem that is, is we're seeing as, as the movement is there. Women also don't feel safe in a lot of these spaces. Um, right. So why would you want to work in an environment where you are going to be harassed or or you're uncomfortable and and everything like that and so these are and these are based on conversations and, and studies that I've done in the manufacturing workplaces right so as as we take a look at this it's how do we move from that culture to yeah. to a culture that women and not even just women it's it's women and newcomers and english language learners and lgbtq uh people it's how do we make that space like welcoming and the, it comes down to uh the the way that we perceive ourselves the way that we understand why we say some things or why we act a certain way because if we start to understand why these jokes are being made or why the, why people feel discomfort in those spaces, that's when we can start to break it down and make it a space where everyone would want to come to. Right. So, you know, as, as, you know, as an industry, what can the manufacturing industry as a whole do to become more cognizant of the existing gaps, uh, you know, in, in creating that comfort level for women and a, a diverse workforce in general, what can they do uh, to be become more welcoming? Any steps that you would suggest? Yeah, actually, I think that this goes back to that that 29% is that yeah. there's 29% of all people in manufacturing are women. How many more people are a part of other marginalized groups? And why are we not seeing those people? When you think of the stereotypical representation of manufacturing, it's yeah. not going to be a woman that looks like me. It's not going to be a uh, member of the 2S LGBTQ community because you're perceiving 
the industry a certain way because that's the way it's been represented. So I think that the most important piece of this is representation. How are we going to draw people in to this industry if we don't see ourselves being there? Because right now, you're having young people who are choosing their futures, looking at all of these different professions and all these dis different disciplines and saying, nope, that looks like a, like a terrible opportunity for me versus they see a company um, and I, I won't formally name people, but there's, there's other companies that are putting out um, they're having conversations about Black Lives Matter. They're having conversations about gender equity. They're open about their pay gaps. They're they're welcoming people to health and nutrition classes and talking about mental health. And they're using opportunities to give diversity attention and to respond to the needs of people um, in, in their workplace, whereas the manufacturing industry, I would say, even if they are doing it, are not largely presenting it to the, the world around them, which means that people are not going to see it and people are not going to want to go and be there. And so with attention to the gaps in diversity, I think first manufacturing uh, companies need to understand their diversity, what right. exists currently, how can you really highlight and value and validate those people and then work from there to those next steps of growing that number and making it bigger? Right. So what do you think should be uh, the first step on embarking on this journey of implementing DEI in an organization? Like what would, uh, for example, if Diverse Solutions were, was called into a manufacturing facility and asked to implement DEI, what would be the first step that uh, you would suggest that they should take? My first step is always understanding where you're at. If you don't know where you're at, then we can never know if we've grown, if we've moved the needle even just a tiny bit, and we can't set goals for our future or where we wanna go. So by understanding where you're at, that includes assessing policies. Something as simple as having he, her, or, or, or um, just like singular pronouns. Um, I've even going, gone into organizations that will just have he as the policy. And while traditionally in English, yeah. he, he, him was used as, as the, the gender. And now I think that we are in a progressive and, and more understanding society that we can change those things. So looking at the self, something as simple as policy, practice, the representation we put out. Um, I, a big thing I like to pay attention to is job postings. What, what, who is the, the job posting geared towards? What is the image of that person? Uh, yeah. Whether it's a physical image or the language used or anything like that. Yeah. Those types of things. Also, what are the practices? What are people saying? Do you have people leaving your company? Why are they leaving your company? What is the demographics of the people leaving? But also, what are the demographics of the people coming? And why is that? So just first of all, understanding yourself. And that comes in many forms. I will do, I do policy analysis for a lot of organizations. I have conversations with leadership to better understand their understanding of 
um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. You, I talk to the employees. I talk to managers. I talk to clients. Um, what does your clients, whether it's a supplier, like any vendor, uh, anyone that's involved with this organization, how do they perceive them? Right. A lot of times I've heard complaints from women in organizations that interact with, with manufacturing because they complain about how they were spoken to, how they were treated, how they're talked to on job sites and everything like that. And so when you understand where you are, yeah, that's when you can start your journey of where you're going, because it's just like any trip. How do you put your destination into Google maps. If you don't know where you're coming from, you won't be able to figure out your route. And so that's a hundred percent. And a lot of that can be done on your own. It's a lot of self-reflection, right. but then moving into that process of how do we change it? That's when you kind of, you want other eyes on it and other eyes to say, this is, this is where you can alleviate those stressors. Right. So uh, like once uh, companies, let's say, have taken the first step and they have been through that self-evaluation process, uh, they have an understanding of where they stand. Uh, I mean, uh, what are the next steps that follow? Like uh, what would be what would logically be the next things that they should do actively to implement DE&I? It's not something that and, and I like to I like to say this because yeah. a lot of people think it go it's like a one two three we're done we move on kind of process but yeah. it's like building a business in any form you always right. create something you measure the success of it and then you learn from that and then you rebuild so it's a constant cycle and so with diversity equity and inclusion work it's the same thing you're doing that self-evaluation, you're reflecting on who you are, where you're at, and then you might do something very tiny. You might just change the pronouns used in your policies. That might be something that's small, easy, and done. Then you might change the image, the stock image that you use for your job posting. They're not always big things that are being done. They're small things. And as you do them, they grow into something bigger. And a lot of it is also done on the back end. And those things will never, ever be seen to the public, to your clientele, to your, to your, um, vendors or suppliers. Those are things that are done for the betterment of your organization internally. And that could be changing the way that you, uh, have your hierarchy set up changing right. the way you speak to people or send out emails or the type of conversations you have internally, who's involved in those conversations, uh, what information you're trying to gather from people instead of saying like you, you didn't do that job, right. Say, yeah. what could we change to help you improve your success of this task? And so there's so many different ways that we can transform the conversation and the, the language and the attitudes and the actions to achieve success. And yeah. that's not, it's, it's, 
it's not a step by step, it's a cycle. And so as organizations and, and start to, to kind of initiate this cycle, it's, there's a lot of patience. Um, and there's a lot of, of asking, a lot of asking yeah. others. We don't ever have to do stuff like this on our own. We can always um, integrate professionals. We can um, involve people of those communities. We can um, involve research and, and, and change. And just because you've done something one way doesn't mean you can't try something new. If it doesn't work, you try something else. And this process is, is long, it's forever, because we're always going to have something that we can change. And so DEI isn't a one-year assessment yeah. of your organization <laughs> and, and movement towards. It's a, it's a process that will forever continue to grow your organization and allow it to be sustainable. So how would you suggest, like, what, what would you suggest that organizations do to, you know, continue to evaluate their pros, uh, progress on this on a regular basis, like uh, evaluate probably uh, every, you know, uh, year or maybe every time they think that, okay, this is the time we need to take this discussion up again to evaluate where we are today and what, where we go to uh, next from here. So I think that um, in evaluation, there are a number of stakeholders to take into consideration. First is obviously those uh, within your organization. If you're going to ask people their experiences, then ask their experiences more regularly. Has what has been done so far met your expectations? What else can we do? How can we continuously improve? The people internally, the people yeah. that are staying in your organization are the best people to talk to because for some reason they have chosen to continue being employed by you. It's also important to ask the people that have left yeah. or are thinking about leaving. Why did you leave? Why do you want to leave? How can we improve the way that we're doing things to make sure people stay? You can do that also in um, a number of other stakeholders that obviously we've talked about, your clientele, uh, suppliers and vendors, you can talk about it with other organizations. How are they doing their DEI work and why is their work succeeding or failing? Right. It's not, a lot, of, a lot of organizations and a lot of people see this process as something to be scared of or to be ashamed of because they don't want to air out their dirty laundry. And I 100% understand that, but we can't grow together if we're growing concurrently beside each other. How do we know if what we're doing is right if we're not checking with other people? Because manufacturing is such a big industry, there are other people probably trying the same things that you're trying. And so- we need to talk about that. Is in is presenting manufacturing to women in a certain perspective working? Why isn't it working or why is it working? And who's telling us it's working? Are we talking to the women in manufacturing? Are we talking to women that aren't in manufacturing and asking them, how can you come to manufacturing? Yeah. We are in a position where our evaluation of our progress is 
related directly to the effort that's put in. Progress is having those conversations. Progress is being open and honest with ourselves. There's no, there, there is numeric, there is numeric value to it as well. Revenues often increase for organizations that have uh, equitable treatment of employees, high, better decision-making, problem-solving. There's better teamwork. Uh, Top-line growth for organizations seems to be the number one because you want to grow as an organization. You want to be more profitable. And the way that you do that is having people not take sick leaves, having people that want to talk to each other and work together about their projects, people that are going to solve those problems. And so it's going to surge your success as an organization. So there are tangible calculated benefits to it. Yeah. And I know that in business, that's often the, the driving force for people to participate in diversity, equity, and inclusion, but there's also that well-being. There's also that culture and happiness and genuine appreciation of people within an organization that will show their their commitment by because of the changes that are being made you have i know uh referred to how a simple change like changing the language that is used in the workplace uh changing the pronouns probably um how that kind of uh, can be one step towards uh this journey in this journey so uh, like from the language perspective i want to ask is like how important it is to be cognizant of the language that you're using today in the workspace there's a lot of components of language that we use that have lasting impacts that may not necessarily be um, attended to in, in that immediate conversation. So as a woman, as a woman of color, yeah. I have experienced a lot of conversation that is demeaning or assumptive of who I am simply because of how I look and so over time, those, and, and the, the formal term is microaggressions. And over time, those microaggressions compile and they eat away at who you are as a person and they make you not want to be there. They make you uncomfortable. They impact mental health and well-being. And so language goes everything from acknowledging, validating, and representing people through pronouns um, or uh, non-gendered language or just the way that we converse with another person that isn't in a hierarchical position where we can level out our social standings, it creates an opportunity to really kind of connect on a human level. And when we connect on a human level, we have that drive of commitment. So a lot of people will say that workplaces are like families and, and, while they are like families, they're never your family because then that obviously would create create a toxic workplace. Yeah. Um, but then we can still implement components of that treatment. We love our family, so we should treat the people we work with with love because when we love people, we're doing something authentically for them. When we respect them, we are really listening and acknowledging how they think and why they think a certain way. And we're valuing them. We're valuing their, their job, whether it's the person that comes in and cleans your desk in the morning 
to the person that is making your coffee if you have a if, if you have a um a coffee bar in your organization or a cafeteria um to the people writing your paycheck every single one of those people should be treated with the same love respect and value because they're you're working co- like collectively to right. achieve something and so language intertwines with those attitudes in the way that we see people and treat people. And that all works towards that achievement of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, you know, you have worked in the manufacturing space. Uh, you have worked with manufacturers uh, to, uh, you know, help them implement D&I. Um, what I want to know is like, have you ever come across any uh, particular kind of resistance or any obstacles uh, during this journey? Like uh, when you're working with them, have you faced resistance or has it been more or less accepted by you know everyone at the facility? There's always resistance and resistance often comes in the form of the anonymous surveys that I do. Um, And and I I think that that highlights the work that I am doing because now you have an anonymous outlet for people to speak so horrifically about people around them or about treatment of people and the, the equity. And it's never... Um, an open forum for people to say, this is how I've been treated. It's always an open, open forum for people who want to talk negatively about women or talk negatively about 2SLGBTQ people. It's always, it's, it's always proving that the environment still exists. And so between that, um, and I think I, I, I'm grateful it's, it's, it's hard to read, but yeah. also grateful. I'm grateful for that because it shows the necessity for the work that we're doing. Yeah. And so that is always consistently present. And I think yeah. also I find a lot of pushback in management because there's a homogenous view. Everyone in management um, not, sorry, not everyone. A lot of people in management in these industries have the same background. They have the same view. And so they perpetuate those views amongst each other. And so when it, someone else is coming in and saying what you're doing is not the most beneficial for your business, what you're doing is not the most beneficial for your employees. Yeah. It's hard to take in because it's something that some of them have doing for 20, 30, 40 years. And now I'm saying you have to change it today. Yeah. And so that the resistance is there. Um, I've learned to, have the conversation in different ways sometimes. And there, there are people who to, to today, I have not been able to get through to despite the research, despite the personal narratives or yeah. the, the, the proof and evidence that there's something broken within their organization. Yeah. It is still hard to, to not necessarily convince, but open people's mind to an alternative method or an alternative practice, which is okay. Because we we have to acknowledge that we're never going to change the world completely. And that's not the goal of the work I do. The goal of the work I do is to allow people the opportunity to reflect on what they do. Yeah. 
And then at that point, they can make the decision. Are you going to continue to do something that you know is wrong or are you going to change it? And that is where my sticking point is with a lot of people. Uh, like out of curiosity, um, this is something that I, I you know, I have uh, come across this point from uh, several women who have who are working in a manufacturing space. They say uh, that they very simple things like you know, in uh, in the on the plant floor, there are not many washrooms for uh, that are dedicated to women, and if they have to uh, use one, they probably have to walk a, like an extra. Uh, uh, floor or go up and down or somewhere far away whereas uh being a more male dominated space the men have access to washrooms uh, wherever like they're working so this is a very tiny thing a very simple thing uh, or even you know something like ppe for uh, women who are working in the facilities um you often don't find that they have a ppe that's that fits their size they're wearing men's small sizes and uh, something that's not created according to their body types. So uh, how, how do you think this plays, uh, you know, in the role that this plays in uh, getting more women into the manufacturing space and, um, you know, overall, like sending a message out, like, you know, if, if a manufacturing facility is actually taking care of these things, you know, it sends a different kind of message and makes it more welcoming. So, well, and that, that's just it. It's, it's, yeah. it is little, little things like that. But when you have a lot of those little things, it really does impact your day. If I was walking into um, a, a plant and I, I have worked uh, in manufacturing on a line um, as a TPT before. And so wearing um, PPE that doesn't necessarily fit me because I'm a woman or wearing um PPE that that doesn't yeah. uh, make it accessible to go to the washroom without taking most of your clothes off it's yeah. it's something that has been built around that male dominated infrastructure so you have a lot of these plants that are built because they were male dominated yeah. or because men were the focus so you have the women's washroom often in the office or often near yeah. the cafeteria and so given given the changes and the in the intention to attract more women to these industries it's the conversation with those women yeah the women that are working in these positions will be able to tell you that things are higher up because majority of the people that used to be working in that space could reach things or the things are bigger because the people that used to work there were bigger than yeah. women will be able to provide those those insights and so little things like that are deterrents it's it's the physical the physical environment yeah is built to a different demographic and and i think now we're starting to see even the inclusion of gender neutral washrooms right. just having a washroom that someone can use or I'm sure that a lot of men would also argue that they have to take off their entire coveralls to go to the washroom sometimes too. Yeah. And so creating more accessible everything isn't yeah. just beneficial to the person using it. It's beneficial because 
Now you're going to have someone covering that person's spot for less time. You yeah. will have cheaper costs because you're creating something that's accessible and usable. You might not be using it, uh, wearing through it as often. And so innovation comes across all aspects of the way that we um, include people. And, and another component of that too, I think to go beyond women, if we want to talk about those intersectionalities is right. including um, some manufacturing facilities have cafeterias, including food that everyone can eat. Um, I know that now we're starting to see that transition to vegetarian alcohol-free spaces because there's an influx of demographic that fits to that need. And so if we're making spaces welcoming and accessible in all aspects of our need, then you're going to have those, those opportunities. Same thing with offering prayer spaces. Um, a lot of industries don't have dedicated prayer spaces. And so by offering um, those types of things, you're going to attract that demographic more so than right now how it's situated. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, um, one thing that, you know, came from what you have been uh, telling on and on, like how it's about the organizations asking their employees, the people who work there, uh, that what is it that they want? What, where is it that where the gaps that they are facing? What are the, what are the issues that they are facing? So uh, like what I want to ask is like, what is the role of the employees themselves? It's not just management, uh, the people at all levels. What is their role in this journey uh, of, you know, making the workplace more diverse and equitable and, you know, um, a, a comfortable place for everyone? What is the role of all levels of people who are working there? I think that by involving everyone, you have an opportunity to create value. If you're asking the people why they're staying, it's going to be a lot cheaper to change things to keep continue keeping those people than to go through an onboarding process again. Re recruitment is always more expensive than retention, right. no matter how you look at it. And so by retaining who's there, it might be a conversation of what type of food do you want to see in a cafeteria? Where can we put a bathroom? What can we change about PPE? Because a lot of people might have already done that. I yeah. know that some industries offer PPE from the from the manufacturing uh, facility itself, whereas some people will choose to purchase their own because it's more comfortable or more appropriate for them. But yeah. when we talk about roles here, yeah. I think it's important to pay attention to tokenism and say, just because there's a woman in your workplace doesn't mean that you should go ask her what yeah. you do for women. Just yeah. because you have a black yeah. person in your, in your workplace doesn't mean you should go say, how do we make our workplace better for black people? But allowing people a voice yeah. is an opportunity for them to in, be involved in that process. And so when, for instance, someone on the line might not necessarily want to speak out because yes. out of fear for their position, superiority. We have a lot of um, people that may be in a situation where they they don't want to speak out against their manager or their, their supervisor. And so creating those safe communication pathways allows those, those conversations to happen, but also involving people. If you're going to have a conversation about equity, 
why don't we create a an or a group or a committee that isn't just the C-suite level? Let's include people from the floor. Let's include people from different sectors so that we can have those true conversations for change. Tasks, task forces that are created out of executive members will never be successful because you're still homogenous in the view that you're all executives. And so everyone plays a role right. in the change, but it is on the industry's leaders yeah. to offer opportunities for those change because no matter how you look at it, people always have a power dynamic in an organization and you can't expect someone to speak out against injustices when they're in perhaps a lower tiered position because I've, I've heard that before. They say, yeah. well, they can just tell us if something's wrong, but it's not always that same perspective or that case when you're on the other end of that, that conversation. So creating those pathways to communication allows people to voice, uh, use their voice and really have the opportunity to co contribute. So, you know, before signing off from this podcast, uh, I want to ask, like, are there any thoughts that you would like to leave the listeners with uh, what they should be, you know, thinking about when they think about this journey? I think my, my, my number one thought is don't be scared. Um, a lot of people have fear or shame or guilt associated with diversity, equity, and inclusion, whether it's because they don't understand it, they feel like it's their fault, or because they feel like they've just waited too long to start. None of, none of the above thoughts are the way that I perceive someone coming to me. And so while those are very real feelings and those are they manifest very heavily and can influence people to not start their journey. Thinking about it, thinking about the way you see the world and the way that you um, understand diversity, equity, inclusion, that is the start of your journey. As you start to think about it, you've already begun to change because you're taking that time out of your day in your life to reflect. And so dismissing those those thoughts isn't necessarily pertinent but just know that even with those thoughts of shame fear guilt anger however you may feel it's still okay to start it's still okay to have those conversations even if it's just to say this is how i feel why do i feel this way and how can we take a take our next steps and so uh i would put it out there that it's never too late to start that journey it's never too late to commit to change and um think if you know that something is wrong why would you still do it right so that's like that's a perfect message to leave our listeners with uh thank you so much janelle for joining us for this uh podcast for advanced women in manufacturing podcast series thank you so much for being here with us today Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to share my thoughts. Great. Right.